After the preaching of the gospel, we will sing as our song of response, hymn 44, 1, 2, and 5. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the fourth commandment of God's holy law is without a doubt the most controversial of them all. While no one questions the validity of the other nine, when it comes to the observance of a special day which the Lord has established, the opinions differ and they differ greatly. First of all, you have those who state that the Sabbath was a ceremonial law which only lasted till the coming of Jesus Christ. Once he arrived and accomplished his work of atonement, there's no longer any need to keep a special day for the Lord, they say. The Lord Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath. So who needs the shadows of the Old Testament now that the Son of Righteousness has come? Every day, they, every day must be lived for the Lord. And to elevate one day above the others is a reintroduction of the Old Testament ceremony which has had its time, which is no longer valid, which can be compared to all the other ceremonies of the Old Testament like sacrifices and special feast days and special laws regarding food which all ceased with the coming of Jesus Christ. Now on the other side of the spectrum, you'll find those who insist that the Sabbath is just as valid for us as it was for the Jews. Some of them reason that this day has been given for all time and that nobody has the right to change it to a different day, like for instance the Seventh-day Adventist belief. While others who have perhaps no problem with the change of day agree with the former that we may not dismiss any of its requirements. These people often celebrate the Sabbath in a legalistic way, where many do's and don'ts receive more attention than the rest and the joy which should determine its celebration. And in the middle of these opinions, you have a third. These people maintain the permanent validity of a weekly day of rest, but they also agree that many Old Testament prohibitions and commands are no longer applicable. With the coming of Jesus Christ, a big change took place, which not only affected this particular day on which we are to rest, but which also rendered certain requirements invalid. Matters, for instance, like not being allowed to light a fire or to prepare meals. And as a result of these various opinions, it shouldn't surprise that many people are confused about the fourth commandment. What does the Lord now exactly demand from us here? Is the maintenance of a special day still a divine command? And if it is, how must we fill that in? How does God want us to celebrate it? What is allowed and what isn't? As you see, brothers and sisters, plenty of questions, no doubt also familiar to you. In every family, especially a family with teenagers, 
These and similar topics are often raised, and more than once they cause heated discussions. Well, brothers and sisters, we do not presume that we are able to answer all your questions with regards to this commandment. But that's not necessary either. As New Testament believers, we stand in the freedom of Jesus Christ. And that freedom brings responsibilities with it. Not everything is spelled out for us anymore. God does not provide detailed answers that pertain to every situation we encounter. But as Christians, we are called to apply the principles of Scripture. And then those principles are dear to us because they come from the Lord. Then we will also experience that they are sufficient to serve God in love and obedience. Not only with regards to the other nine commandments, but also with regards to the fourth. To rest on his day and to rejoice on that day. Because that stands unassailed. Whatever may have changed since the Old Testament, this has not. Also in the New Testament dispensation, the fourth commandment is still valid. And that's why that first opinion which we mentioned is dead wrong. Nowhere in the Word of God is there any indication that it is a ceremonial law which ends with the coming of Christ. Wouldn't that be abnormal as well, brothers and sisters? Can you imagine God giving us His complete law consisting of ten commandments, all of them being of permanent validity except one? Does that not run against the truth that our God is not a God of confusion but of peace? Why would our Lord do so? Wouldn't it create unnecessary difficulties? And is the Lord out to make it difficult for us? Doesn't he give us his word to be a light on our path and a lamp before our feet? No, I cannot touch on every aspect of this commandment. It's impossible to deal with all that relates to it in one sermon. But this afternoon we will concentrate on two things. First of all, the permanence of this word of God. And secondly, the joy that should color its celebration. If by the grace of God we may learn to see these two important points better, the keeping of this special day will be a source of much blessing for us and our children. And we will receive enough to keep us busy implementing them in our service to God. And so I proclaim to you the Word of God under the heading, The Day of the Lord is a Day for the Lord. Now we take our starting point in Isaiah 56. We read it. For in this passage, we learn that the Sabbath is not only confined to the Old Testament church. We mentioned already that many, many Christians reason like that. They dismiss the validity of this commandment by simply saying that it was only given to the Jewish nation, to God's Old Testament people. But that is not true, brothers and sisters. That is not true. The prophet Isaiah at least does not agree with that view at all. 
For what does he say? What is he busy with in the verses that we read? Well, he prophesies about the future. He gives us a picture of what will happen when the church will no longer be gathered from the Jewish nation only, but out of all the tribes and the nations that inhabit this earth. In the first two verses of Isaiah 56, Isaiah addresses the people of his own time. And he stresses that faith in God is more, far more, than saying the right things. It must also show up. Show up in a life of obedience. Show up in that they practice righteousness. That means that their life is in line with the commandments of God. That his will is obeyed instead of everyone doing his own thing. And he also mentions in this regard the Sabbath, the fourth commandment of God's holy law. Now why? And why does he only mention this commandment and none of the others? It's not said. The context does not make it clear. And it's no good guessing either. Yet it was the Sabbath that really made God's people stand out from the rest of the nations. Because the Sabbath is called the sign of the covenants. No, not here, not in Isaiah 56, but already in Exodus 31. And the prophet Ezekiel repeats that in chapter 20. Now you may ask, what is so important about that? Does this mean that the fourth commandment stands way above the others? No, brothers and sisters, that's not the case. The Bible never rates the commandments as if one stands higher than the others. Together, the Ten Commandments constitute the will of God for our life. You can't serve Him by picking and choosing. It's either all or none. But it was especially the fourth word of God's law that stood so diametrically opposed to the customs of all the other nations. Only Israel enjoyed a special day of rest. Only the Jewish nation enjoyed a weekly break. Only God's covenant people were privileged to regularly cease from their daily labors and to devote this one day in seven to God's praise. And that fact marked the Sabbath as a special sign, a sign of the covenant of grace which God had established with Israel. But how does Isaiah then continue? What kind of picture does he paint of the messianic future when God's covenant no longer will be restricted to the Jewish nation? Does he say, well, brothers, Foreigners will be allowed to be joined to God's people, but they will always remain separate. They will never become as dear to the Lord as Israel. No, Isaiah says something completely different. He predicts that when the gospel goes out to every nation, whoever comes to faith will be numbered as belonging to that same covenant. 
And although it will be a new covenant, new in the sense that it will far surpass the riches of the old one because of Jesus Christ and his work of reconciliation, principally speaking, it remains the one covenant of grace which will embrace all the believers and their children from Israel and from every other nation under the sun. And what is then so striking, brothers and sisters? What is so striking in this connection? Well, when the gospel reaches the heathen tribes, when God's salvation goes out to the ends of the earth, those pagans who come to faith will still keep the Sabbath. That peculiar sign of the covenants, that monument of God's mercy and faithfulness. In verse 6, both words, Sabbath and covenant, are even mentioned in one breath. Let us never forget that, brothers and sisters. Let us never reason as if the Sabbath came to an end once the New Testament started. Isaiah 56 tells us clearly that this won't be the case. In God's house of prayer, in the New Testament church of the Lord, gathered from all peoples, the Sabbath, that special day of physical rest and spiritual worship, will continue. Its observance is closely tied to our covenantal life. Sure, the way we fill that in has changed. We already mentioned those specific prohibitions which God gave to his Old Testament people, like not being allowed to gather firewood or cooking dinner. The New Testament does not lay down a whole slew of rules and regulations as to how exactly we must keep God's Sabbath. And that shouldn't really surprise us, for that belonged to the period when the church was still in its infancy. When, as Paul says to the letter, to, in the letter to the Galatians, Israel of old had not yet come of age. Children need to be told in detail what goes and what doesn't go. But when you are an adult, then you've got to use your own mind. And then you have to apply the principles that you have learned in responsibility towards God and the neighbor. And that also applies in the spiritual realm. Yet, it does not take away the fact that keeping the day of rest is still a command of God, which remains in force as long as this world exists. Oh, I realize that this is vigorously denied by many, many people. They love to quote the New Testament, for instance, where Paul more than once writes that the keeping of the Sabbath is no longer a divine command. But is that really what he says, brothers and sisters, in Romans 14, verse 5, Colossians 2, 16 and 17, and Galatians 4, verse 10, for instance? If you look those places up, and if you read them in their context, it will become clear that Paul has something else in mind. Paul is not denying the permanent validity of the fourth commandment, but he takes issue with a Jewish, a sectarian, a legalistic observance of that day. The people he fights against, though they are called Christians, 
had no eye for the progress that God has made in the history of salvation. They failed to see that the coming of Jesus Christ had ushered in a new dispensation in which the church had come of age and that all those Old Testament shadows which also affected the observation of the Sabbath had disappeared. Not in the sense that the fourth commandment is now out of date, but the day of rest has now been moved from Saturday to Sunday. And the celebration of it was left in the freedom of the believers to their own responsibility how to give form and shape to the proper observance of this day. Why else? Why else do we see a gradual shift from the last to the first day of the week when we read the New Testament? Why else does the New Testament church start to assemble on Sundays instead of Saturdays? Sure, it took some time. The change was slowly, but that's understandable, brothers and sisters, especially because of its social implications. A custom of hundreds of years does not disappear overnight. Do we not see much the same with the change of, say, circumcision to baptism? Was that readily understood by everyone immediately? Didn't that require a lot of instruction so that it took quite some time before everyone was convinced? However, all this does not negate the truth that the fourth commandment remained valid and the call to rest and worship remained in force. We see that very clearly, for instance, then we read Revelation 1, written some 90 years after the birth of Jesus Christ, when the second generation of Christians formed the bulk of the church's membership. What do we then read? How does the Apostle John refer to the day when he saw the risen Lord and was instructed by him to write seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor? Well, then John mentions that this took place on the Lord's day. He doesn't explain that phrase at all. He just took it for granted that his readers knew exactly what he meant. What else could he mean but the first day of the week? The day when Jesus Christ rose from the dead? The day that had become the great turning point in the history of God's redemption? For on that day... It became incontrovertibly clear that Satan had lost, that sin had been atoned for, and that death had been conquered. The rest of which the Old Testament spoke under the image of having been liberated from Egypt, from the slavery there, has now become the rest in the blood of Jesus Christ because sin has been defeated. And so this new day, this first day of the week proclaims the new dimension of the gospel of salvation. Even though the Old Testament Sabbath also pointed to this rest, but then in a shadowy form, the New Testament day of the Lord reveals it much, much brighter and far, far richer. 
And that's why that change took place from Saturday to Sunday. <coughs> that's why the Sabbath rest is now celebrated on the first day of the week. But what has not changed was the command to rest and to worship. Now I realize that the New Testament does not give us all that much information about the keeping of the fourth commandment. And many people use this relative silence as a proof that it's no longer in force. But please let's not get confused, brothers and sisters. And let us not use the absence of clear and detailed information as to how the Christians, the early Christians, observed the fourth commandment as an excuse for us to disregard it or to minimize its importance. The Bible provides us with sufficient data to know that the church assembled not on the Saturday anymore, but on this day, the first day of the week. They used it for exactly the same purposes as God had given the Sabbath to Israel, not only to rest, from their everyday activities, but also to be refreshed spiritually by going to church. For although the commandment itself does not speak about the services, the church services that is, we know for instance from Leviticus 19 and 23 and 26 that that was a very, very important part of it. To sanctify this day, that is, to devote it to the Lord was both a matter of rest and worship. All of that is implied in the phrase, the Lord's day. For that day stood for the day of which the fourth commandment spoke, now celebrated on Sunday. What else can it mean? And why else would the Apostle John have mentioned it? Sure, all the days of the week belong to God. In that regard, there is no difference between any of them. Yet, the first day of the week was special. So special that it was named after the Lord Jesus Christ. So special that from this time on, this was to be the day on which God's people may cease from their work and worship Him for the rest they enjoy through the blood of Jesus Christ. And please note, it is the Lord's day. No, we're not going to read more into that than what it means. But it's no luxury to remind ourselves that the entire day belongs to God. There is a tendency also amongst Canadian Reformed people that when church is finished, the rest of the day doesn't matter all that, all that much anymore. Oh, True, we have to be very much on guard not to saddle each other with man-made regulations. Not to create a long list, for instance, of what can be done and what can't. But if you remember what the day of the rest was given for, if you have seen the goodness of God in giving us this day, that He allows you one day in seven to forget about your daily cares and to devote it to His glory, then this will help you greatly to sanctify the entire day and not to restrict it to the church services. Let us be thankful, brothers and sisters, that the fourth commandment is still in force.
that as God's New Testament people, we may enjoy this weekly break, which gives us a foretaste of the eternal rest. All around us, we see people scurrying about their daily businesses. All around us, life is a beehive of activities where the great majority toils and slaves to make a living, but not in dependence on God. Not by obeying His law, stores are open. More and more factories have introduced shift work that includes Sunday work. And the service industries have since long given up on the six-day week. And many who do not have to work on Sundays use that day to catch up on their sleep or to spend it for recreational purposes. And many of them claim to be Christians. But the only thing they differ in, outwardly speaking at least, is that they still attend church. But for the rest, they use this day for much the same purposes as the unbelievers. Is that celebrating the day of rest? Is that using it for why God has given it? Is that keeping this day holy for the glory of God's name? No, brothers and sisters, it is not. It runs right against the will of our God. He wants us to regard the entire day as being special, for it's a feast day. It's not the same as any other day when you don't have to work, like for instance a public holiday, but it's a special day, a day of joy, a day we ought to treasure, for it's the day of the Lord, and that's why we use it for Him and His service. Oh, there are many who regard the day of rest as an oppressive institution. All through the history of the church, you meet with those who regarded the gift of the Lord as a burden. More than once, the Old Testament prophets had to censure God's people for breaking the Sabbath. Not accidentally, but on purpose, consciously. They just couldn't wait to get back to their daily activities of buying and selling, working and making money. And in Jesus' days, we see another attitude which robbed the Sabbath of its joy. The Pharisees, with their belief that a man could earn God's favor by keeping his commandments, had made the observation of the Sabbath into a terrible burden. It became a straight jacket which choked every bit of joy out of people. What a gross perversion of this day. What a completely different observance than God intended. And it doesn't surprise when there is no joy in keeping the day of the Lord, then people start to dread the Sunday and they can't wait till it's over. But it wasn't meant to be like that. The Lord didn't give this day to His people to burden them with it and to make them miserable. No, it was a gift of God's grace. It was a token of His goodness. It was a means to rejoice in the care and provisions of the Lord. Is that not also what the prophet Isaiah tells us? Doesn't he tell the people that this day is to be a day of delight? For this day reminded the Jews of their liberation from the house of Egypt. 
just as our Sundays, our Lord's Days, remind us of our redemption in Jesus Christ. And that's why the Lord Jesus ran into so much trouble with those Pharisees. For our Lord revealed the joy which the Sabbath proclaims. The joy of forgiveness and freedom from sin, but also from its ugly results like sickness and handicaps, paralysis and death. It's no coincidence, brothers and sisters, that Jesus did most of his healings on a Sabbath day. For that day was ideally the day which spoke of liberation and rest and freedom. That day was to serve as a prelude of the eternal Sabbath, then all sin and all its evil consequences will forever be a thing of the past. And that's still to be the case. The day of the Lord must be a day of joy to us. For if it isn't, well, then there's something seriously wrong. Then it's high time that we start to examine ourselves and ask what faith in the Lord actually and really means to us. Yes, I said, it must be a day of joy. Not the kind of joy which stays on the human level. Not the kind, says the prophet Isaiah, where you use this day for your own pleasure, but a joy in the Lord, a delight in His service. And that's why the church services play such a prominent role on this day both in the Old and in the New Dispensation. For where else, brothers and sisters, do we enjoy the grace and love of our God in greater abundance than in church? Where else can a child of God find more happiness this side of heaven than to be in the presence of his Father when he meets with his children? For it's especially in church where we hear of the rest God provides where we are confronted with His wonderful love, where we are told of His promises of salvation, which are ours when we simply trust and believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, I can hear someone say, now you're talking about the church. But how must that joy extend itself over the entire day? How does God want us to celebrate it when church is finished? And we get home. Well, brothers and sisters, in no other way but that we carry the joy of forgiveness and life of God's love and faithfulness with us so that we ponder about it and remind ourselves and encourage each other of the undeserved goodness which our Heavenly Father showers upon us to reveal True joy, brothers and sisters, is a serious business, just as serious as exercising your Christian freedom. The joy that each Lord's Day provides must color the celebration of the entire day, not in an artificial manner, neither as a new law to which we must submit, but from the joy that the gospel brings to our hearts as it is proclaimed to us in the weekly church services. Oh, it can become very tempting for a pastor to tell his congregation exactly what they must and what they must not do 
on the Lord's Day. And some church members expect it from him as well. But if he does that, he is bound to run into difficulties. Difficulties with the Word of God, that is. Difficulties that are occasioned by laying down precise instructions that go beyond the Word of God. All I can and all I must say in the name of the Lord is that you are to live from the joy of faith and celebrate God's day in line with that joy. For if that joy is lacking, you'll never be able to appreciate the Lord's day and to use it for His glory and your benefit. True, the Lord wants us to live from the joy of the gospel seven days a week. It's not to be reserved for one day only. We're not to be Sunday Christians. But it's just as true that this joy receives a very special flavor on the Lord's day for the simple reason that God gives us the time and the opportunity to consciously be busy with it. During the week, the joy of faith is often muted. We live in a society where God and His service don't mean all that much anymore. And though we have a task in this world, and we may love many things in it yet, which God gives to us in His goodness, from a biblical point of view, the Bible tells us that we are strangers and aliens. Our citizenship is in heaven. We do not have an abiding city here in this world. And we notice that too. If you live as God's children, you'll experience that many don't understand you, that some take offense at you, that others even harass you. But on Sundays, the Lord gives us a welcome break. Then we may leave the worries and the cares behind us for a while. For then He calls us to church to invigorate us and to comfort us and to strengthen us for the daily task to which He calls us. And that is a matter of great joy. For then, then the Lord, so to speak, lifts us above our day-to-day -day cares and He assures us of His wonderful love which will never leave us to ourselves, but guarantees us the eternal rest to which we are traveling. Sure, that joy is not to be reserved for the church services only. The whole day allows us to be busy with it, provided you celebrate it in a God-fearing manner. Celebrate it by using the opportunities it provides for the greater glory of God and for your own and your family's benefits. How, you ask? Can't you give us any examples? Well, sure, but then of a general nature, beloved, based on the principles for which the Lord gives us this day. Exactly because the Lord's day is a feast day to God's children, it ought to keep us far from the company of those who do not want to celebrate this feast with us. Sporting events, 
going shopping, eating out in public places, watching TV the moment you get home from church are not very conducive to this joy. Stronger, they often go against it. What can you learn from those people who only live for themselves? How can these and similar activities promote the, holy day, the holiness of, God, of the Lord's day, which God demands from us? Can you rejoice in the company of those who don't give a care for it, who use it for their own pleasure instead of God's glory? Brothers and sisters, we are still so richly blessed by living in a country where we may celebrate the Lord's Day without any obstacles. There are thousands, if not millions, of God's children across this world who would gladly trade places with us. And that's why we should make the most of it. Life is busy enough. A lot of things we just don't get around to. But come Sunday, our Heavenly Father says, relax, my children. Take a break and come to church where I will bless you with the treasures of the gospel and where I will strengthen you to give you whatever you need for the week ahead and use the rest of that day to enhance the joy which the gospel provides. Seek the company of those who share the same faith. Take time out for talking with your children no, not necessarily always about the sermon, that too, of course, but speak with them about the Lord and His service. Get to know what lives in their hearts. Take them, for instance, for a walk. Show them the greatness of God in creation. Or read a good book or a magazine. Train yourself in how to live godly lives. Catch up on acquainting yourself with the latest news about God's kingdom and church. Or visit those who would love a visit. I hope you get the gist of what I mean. It's only a sampling, but it ought to be enough. If the keeping of God's day, the Lord's day, if the keeping of that day becomes a bore, if there is no joy in the weekly blessing that we may rest from our work, and assemble around God's word here in church, it's a very bad sign. For then we no longer stand amazed at God's goodness. Then we've lost sight of what it means to be a child of the Lord. Indifference towards the day of the Lord. A worldly attitude in how we spent that day has estranged thousands from Christ's church and the Christian religion. Oh, usually it starts slowly. It does not happen overnight as a rule. First, there's sloppiness in church attendance. Almost any excuse becomes good enough to stay home and do your own thing. And the atmosphere at home necessarily suffers, of course. A worldly spirit takes over and it's not confined to the heart but it shows up in many ways. To dress up for the day slowly disappears. The day becomes like any other and we don't have to work. There's nothing festive to be noticed. Everything becomes drab and you can't tell the difference anymore between a Christian 
in a secular surrounding. And once that's the case, well, then the downward trend gains speed. Unless there's a repentance, whatever is left of spiritual life gets choked to death by the worldliness that has entered the home. And the end result is usually that one withdraws from the church or is put under discipline because of a life of sin. And that's why the fourth commandment is crucial, beloved. That's why celebrating it with joy is one of the strongest means to keep our church and our families spiritually healthy. Let's thank our Heavenly Father for this gift of His grace. And let's use this day for the purpose He has given it. For the day of the Lord must be used for the Lord. No, of course, that does not mean as if we don't benefit from it. We do. After all, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, the Bible says. But we only benefit from it when we celebrate it in faith, praising God for this gift that speaks of rest and joy. Rest from the daily struggle to make a living. Rest from the stifling weight of our sins. A rest which Jesus Christ obtained for us since His blood assures us of God's caring love and abiding faithfulness. And therefore, the Lord's Day should be treasured with joy. It's a day that gives us a foretaste of the final and the perfect rest to which we are traveling, where our joy will reach its perfection. Is that not the summary of the gospel in a way? Does it not speak of rest and joy that can't be found anywhere else? And that's why our Lord comes to you with that gracious invitation, also by means of this sermon. Come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest for your body and rest for your soul, which the Lord's Day provides and pictures, but only for those who celebrate it with a thankful heart for God's glory and therefore also for their eternal gain. Amen.